Welcome to another Greening the News with IEMA, the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. My name is Sarah Mukherjee. I'm IEMA's Chief Executive and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you to this month's podcast. IEMA is the international membership organisation for everyone with an interest in sustainability. We have more than 17,000 members in more than 115 countries around the world who we help to train, inspire and support on their professional journey. Now, as a former journalist, I know that as the holiday season begins to arrive in Western Europe and the States and the politicians leave their offices, bulletin editors are often looking for stories with which to fill the news. Summer sport can help, but it's often the weather that provides enough copy to reduce that gap. However, this year, the coverage of extreme weather events would have led the news at any time of year. Crippling heat in Canada and the United States, forest fires in Russia, flash floods in China and India and Western Europe have claimed hundreds of lives, destroyed homes and livelihoods and put millions of pounds worth of damage onto our infrastructures and systems. For those who have been forced to move from their homes and communities in Asia and sub-Saharan Africa over many years, the devastating effects of extreme weather is nothing new. It's been argued by some commentators, indeed, that some of the world's most violent recent conflicts have been caused by climate change. So are we beginning to see the destabilising consequences of climate change? And if so, what can we do to mitigate or halt it? In a moment, I'll be talking to two leading commentators about the relationship between the environment and conflict. But first, here's Andre Farah with our News Roundup. It's traditional to use the point of 100 days to go to an event to assess progress. And we are now past that milestone for the vital climate conference COP26. But the jolting reality of the searing heat in America's Pacific Northwest, the devastation of floods across parts of Europe and fires in Siberia all bring the reality of a heating world into our lives more starkly than a clock ticking down to another conference of the parties. But it racks up pressure to see real progress in Glasgow. Leadership is key and the UK's team has to step up to ensure COP26 delivers. Former Prime Minister Theresa May has taken up the role of chair of the Aldersgate Group, taking over from former MP Joan Wally. As Prime Minister, Mrs May saw through the UK's commitment to achieve net zero by 2050. She joins the Aldersgate Group at a critical moment as the UK's leadership on climate and environment will be tested as commitments must be translated into effective action. A new study in Nature Climate Change reveals the extent to which weather records are being broken and the likelihood that records will be shattered by larger margins in the future, even with current levels of global heating. The warning comes with a call to ensure planning for extremes is factored into the response to the climate emergency. In a week when Liverpool's historic waterfront lost its World Heritage status, the World Heritage Committee avoided listing the Great Barrier Reef as in danger, preferring to seek further analysis. Despite acceptance of the weight of science showing the reef is at risk impact of the climate crisis, the Great Barrier Reef must wait to be the first World Heritage Site to be listed as in danger from climate change. 
Measuring and quantifying biodiversity is essential, both if we wish to understand the conservation status of species and habitats or to plan for nature's recovery. DEFRA have launched an algorithm-based metric for calculating the biodiversity value of land lost to development as a means of working out the potential for offsetting. But critics are pointing out that some transitional habitats are seriously undervalued in this approach. Scrubland is one such that could be lost to development with a computer saying no to compensation. Thank you, André. So, as I said, we've got two fantastic guests to talk about this very relevant topic of environment and conflict. Uh, General Richard Nuji is Climate Change and Sustainability Non-Executive Director at the UK Ministry of Defence. And Kemi Ajakaye is Executive Director of Ampac Nigeria Limited. Richard and Kemi, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Richard, I wonder if I could perhaps start with you, as this is a very recent topic in uh, for you. You, you created a, a groundbreaking, perhaps world-leading sustainability and defence uh, strategy fairly recently. Um, and presumably you've been thinking an awful lot about this link between conflict, environment and destabilising climate change. I mean, on the whole, how do you feel? Are you optimistic or pessimistic for the future? So I'm, I'm a born optimist. Um, and I think that um, if uh, uh, humanity recognises the uh, extreme danger that I think uh, climate change could produce to our way of life, if humanity recognises that, then I think we can do something about it and we can avert some of the worst um, that uh, climate change can create. But if we if we ignore it or if we don't do enough, both in terms of um, reducing the amount of greenhouse gases that are going into the atmosphere, but also in understanding the local implications of the severity of climate change in certain environments, uh, then I think, uh, uh, frankly, conflict is more likely than um, it has been in the past. There is yet another factor that will make conflict uh, more likely. And I think that uh, the reality is the world always has conflict in it somewhere. Um, and uh, that was well before climate change um, was, if you like, the, one of the dominant factors. But with climate change, it adds a pressure. I, I, I sort of use an analogy of a pressure cooker. Um, if you carry on heating a, um, a pressure cooker, eventually something will blow. And um, uh, what we need is the release valve. And in a sense, um, our understanding of the issue and doing something about it could provide that release valve, which reduces the pressure that uh, climate change is likely to create for conflict. Kemi, you are working um, across many countries, including in sub-Saharan Africa. Presumably, the work that you're doing in environmental management and, and as an environmental leader uh, you're really beginning to see that change or, or, or is it something that you know, perhaps other communities in, in Western Europe and, and the States are only just beginning to understand? Um, thanks, Sarah. Um, so let me say, first of all, climate change is not just an environmental challenge, but it's also a socioeconomic challenge. And when I, when I speak, I often speak knowing that um, I am Nigerian. I, I, I have to integrate everything I say looking at Nigeria and then West Africa and Africa in general. The severity of the destabilization caused by climate change on society will depend on the intensity and frequency of environmental risks, but also its socioeconomic status and vulnerability to risks. 
we have to know that uh, climate change does impact and could disrupt people's homes, livelihoods, health, means of sustenance and well-being. But although there are existing socioeconomic issues in different locations, I mean, in the northern part of Nigeria, that's very much pronounced. Inequality, unemployment, hunger, civil arrest. But the truth is climate change could directly or indirectly exacerbate these issues. And you mentioned, as you said, it's not just a, an environmental issue, it becomes a societal issue as well. I mean, do, do you think that um, from, from what you've seen, there is already a destabilizing effect going on as people, they can't work where they want to, they can't thrive where they want to. In some cases, communities are, going to, are having to leave areas that they've lived in for generations in order to find a, a new way of living. Absolutely. Um, so in many developing countries, available resources are usually stretched, particularly Western Europe, due to the populations that rely on it. And so where you have, um, you know, influx of immigrants, that would further put a strain, you know, on the available resources. And it's usually difficult to integrate into new societies. And longer the times get, there are no decent jobs anymore. The rate of unemployment in the world is increasing. Of course, it's highest in developing countries. So when people migrate to other developing countries, they are usually met with harsh conditions. And that's the reality the African nations face. So there have also been increased cases of immigrants, immigrants becoming hostile. I mean, that's very common these days, and it threats to the host communities. This, in many cases, have been caused by frequent and ongoing instability in some climes in Nigeria. So you have Many Nigerians now try to move to Western Europe and you have all these um, general bilateral, multilateral agreements that are beginning to change. And you find developing countries also trying to change laws and regulations that may disfavor climate-influenced immigrants. Uh, Richard, um, it, that's a really interesting perspective, isn't it, from Kemi? Because we tend to sit, you, know, you and I both in the UK, we tend to see... Um, climate destabilization very much from a Western European, perhaps inevitably a Western Europe, European perspective. But in fact, that is sometimes the, the, the ultimate expression of an, an awful lot of conflict and, and, and movement that has been going on as a result of climate change within developing countries themselves. Yes, and I, I mean, first of all, I completely agree with everything Kemi is saying um, and, and recognise it uh, from the people I've been speaking to, um, for example, in Somalia um, and, and, and various other countries like Mali, um, where, where the reality is that this is already happening and that uh, climate change and the um, lack of an ability to harvest food uh, from the rural environment is very often, um, and we've got clear examples in Somalia, we actually had examples in Iraq as well, of communities uh, separating, if you like, and, and young people going off to the cities to try and make money where, where they end up with uh, very little. Um, and are um, and there's two sides to that. One is they're making the cities more uh, populated um, and arguably overpopulated, uh, and as these cities are always um, uh, fairly full anyway, which which provides tension. You know, if you overpopulate a, a, an environment, you, you virtually always get tension at, at, at some stage. But the other side to it, which we've seen in uh, both Somalia and 
understand in Iraq is that radical groups which um, prey on uh, displaced people, prey on uh, people who don't have very much, ISIS uh, used and they 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 used people who'd come into the cities from the the local uh, farms because their farms weren't being able to operate and largely that was due to uh, lack of irrigation and due to the intense heat that was coming as a result of climate change. Um, ISIS actually targeted these people and, and offered them money uh, to go and join ISIS. And, and um, uh, these people, these sort of rural farmers who were coming in, were, were very often, you know, they weren't, they weren't radicals. They weren't um, agreeing with the ideology. What they were doing was trying to feed their family by, by, by taking money from ISIS. And, and you're seeing the same in Somalia with al-Shabaab um, and, uh, to a certain extent, other, other groups in um, southern Africa, where radicals um, and radicalization, um, it, it becomes a way of life because it's a way of earning a living. But there's another side to it. And, and, and I would hope um, Kemi might recognize this as well. And I hope, in other words, she, she, uh, Kemi might agree with it. What you're getting is rural dislocation in the, 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 the villages, the rural villages. Um, they're losing so many people that the villages themselves are beginning to cease to function effectively. And so you're getting um, destitution in the villages uh, because people have moved to the cities. And that's a recipe for more tension and potential conflict. Kemi, I mean, is that something that you, you recognise as well? Uh, yes, I, I, will, I will allude to what General Nugay said. So I think climate change impact on its own does not induce conflicts or violence. But however, it does ride on existing foundational and underlying social and political issues. And that is such you have in my country, Nigeria, and of course, Sub-Saharan Africa. So um, for instance, societies where wealth is disproportionately circulated among citizens, and where poverty inequality are prevalent, the emotions of citizens are valid to conflicts and agitations. So in every society, some specific natural resources are major means of sustenance, survival, protection, and prosperity. So climate change does weaken that structural foundation of these resources through prolonged drought, flooding, extreme heat. So you have that in the north, northeastern part of Nigeria, particularly. So mining, mining sector is also one area that is highly impacted through um, climate change. But of course, unfortunately, societies means livelihood, climate change are dependent and they are most impacted. So in Northern Nigeria, again, the scarcity of pasture land caused by limited rainfall, drought, desertification, and this has forced the cattle herders to migrate down south, such, you know, lush of pasture to feed their heads. Of course, this has also resulted in continuous and bloody clashes now we have more internally displaced persons, you know, so um, we can go on and on and on. So in developed countries where there are private ranches, where you have livestock that are catered for and all of that, it's not the same in the African setting. So, yes, I do allude to what General Anugi said. It's um, we begin to have this, uh, you know, internal displaced persons due to, you know, climate change riding on fundamental socioeconomic and political issues. Uh, um, Richard, I mean, it's... it's um... It's a really interesting way, I mean, almost a completely different way uh, of viewing defence um, from perhaps the traditional way, which is all about the actual conflict and um, the, you know, the, the kind of the, the end point of this. I mean, do you, do you think we are taking climate change 
and the difference it is making and the effect it's having on society seriously enough in terms of that overall context of global security and you know, security of uh, of Western Europe, the UK, the States, you know, wherever you happen to be in the world. I think it, it is... <laughs> people in defence are, at the end of the day, realists and have to deal with the, the problem in front of them. And climate change, as, 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 as Kemi said, you know, climate change is uh, one factor, um, but it is not the only factor. And um, not all uh, conflict is, is going to be as a result of climate change exacerbating the position. And not all climate change is going to end up in conflict. Um, you know, it, so, so, so it is a nuanced approach, and, and, and defence has to look at all the threats to uh, both this country, to um, the sort of alliances that we are responsible for, and for Western Europe, etc. Is it taking it seriously enough? I think I think it is. Um, it is beginning to really. Um, if you like, uh, be part of the consciousness of defence that we need to understand, um, and this is this is where NATO is going as well. We need to understand what is happening because I don't think there's a really clear understanding. I think that the United Nations has sent the first climate and uh, security envoy uh, to Somalia. Uh, a guy called Christoph, who, who, who I've spoken to quite a lot, um, to try and work out what is actually happening on the ground. But there's only one of him at the moment, and, and the UN has plans to send more, but one in all the conflicts um, in the world. So this is a new, uh, if you like, a new consciousness, and we need to do the understanding. We need to do the horizon scanning. We need to work out where climate change is going to have the effect of um, exacerbating the situation such that there will be conflict because it's not going to happen everywhere. And then we can start to focus. And so I don't think we're doing uh, enough at the moment uh, because we don't understand enough at the moment. And what we've really got to do is get that understanding uh, in place so that we can uh, start to then deploy. But one of, one of the things I said in my report is that we should be looking at uh, deploying to build resilience where it is necessary. And it's not just the sort of resilience of adaptation uh, for when flooding occurs or whatever. It's the resilience of governments and resilience of, of, of those that are willing to have our help and uh, would wish us to be able to help them to, uh, to be able to uh, build the environment where they can sustain the, if you like, uh, the, the, the danger of climate change. And I think that's where we need to go. But I think these are early days of understanding which we need to improve. But it's an awful lot for the MOD or any defence agency to take on, isn't it? I mean, you're, in your uh, recent and very comprehensive strategy, it's not just the external, as you said, the, the, the resilience building kind of looking upstream before a conflict happens, but it's also all the internal stuff. I mean, it's difficult, to, I would imagine, to um, to power jet engines on anything other than a huge amount of fuel. And so it, it, it's a huge, when you're actually thinking as well that the world is a very unstable place, perhaps getting even more unstable at the moment with, if you look at across the world geopolitically, it, it, we're asking we're asking defence agencies to do an awful lot, aren't we? Yes, um, and uh, that's why, and I know this is uh, not popular among some, where I set a, a target of uh, net zero for defence, which, and defence has, has, has said they will contribute to uh, the um, uh, the country becoming net zero by, by 2050. Um, and some people came to me and said, surely you should be saying defence should be net zero by 2030 or 2040 at the latest. And I said, defence is a, is a huge, complex, 
um, and uh, a department that has many, many, many interests and many, many different ways of doing business. Um, and to get every single aspect of that to reduce our emissions, for example, to be able to adapt so that we both adapt our equipment and um, adapt our bases so that they're more resilient to uh, the sorts of, uh, I mean, we have lots of ports around the world um, in our overseas territories and in our own country, um, and they are going to be affected ultimately by uh, rising sea levels, um, although that will take a bit of time, I think, to have a, a significant effect on us. But there is a huge amount of defence, and we need to be able to understand and deal with all of it rather than just tiny bits of it. So yes, it's a huge uphill struggle. But what really impresses me is that defence, um, my report, uh, could have been just ignored. But it wasn't. The Secretary of State took it. Um, the uh, Permanent Secretary is using it. Uh, and we're trying to make a difference now. It will take time. It will be slower than most people would like, I would argue. But actually, if we get there, then we will have been, um, we will have been at the forefront of militaries to try and build a more stable environment and also a cleaner world. Kemi, so that, here's Richard with a groundbreaking report. He's talking an awful lot about building resilience. We've talked an awful lot about the problems, but what do you think the solutions are there? I mean, if um, if you were asking the, the UK government to, to provide some support in this in the context in which we've been talking, what, what would be the thing that would be the greatest help for the issues that you see on a daily basis? My, um, thanks, Sarah. So um, let me say first, um, I know <laughs> generally Nuke is here, but you see, when you when you have the term military intervention, you know, in Africa in the African context, it has a different connotation. So we have to be mindful. So I think situation should involve military intervention when things are out of hand. Avoidance of conflict is about leadership and management issues in Africa. It's a primary duty of the government and the leaders for the society. So however that being said, in volatile communities, mounting military presence is strategic places, of course, who quell conflicts and the like. But, but let's look at it. You know, um, Nigeria in recent times have had this nationally determined contribution, and that's in partnership with the UNDP. And um, two months or three months ago, thereabout, we updated that. And so there's more global commitment towards embracing sustainable development, there are measures now to limit the rate of global warming and the negative impact of um, climate change. So for, for me, leadership, it's a very important thing. So the African leaders have to rise up to the occasion and say, you know what, we are incapacitated by resources, knowledge, and so how can we begin to build capacity? How can they, I mean, climate change is a huge and cost-cutting issue. So it does require that political shift that will include resources, technical knowledge, to be able to put you know, safety nets and coping mechanisms on climate change. Could, could I could I just c come in there very briefly, Sarah, if I might, just 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 to respond yes, to that? Yes, please. Yes, please. Um, what I would say to to Kemi and to others is that um, two two things. One is one is defence doesn't have to, and this this may sound a bit weird, but 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 we have more to our arsenal than just weapons. Um, uh, that actually some of our processes and some of the, uh, the, the the ways that we negotiate and so on are are, are much more valuable in in many cases uh, than uh, that than the weapons that we we can hold but don't 
don't have to. Um, and, and the way that we've translated that is to talk about um, defence's contribution as part of um, what we call the three Ds of, of, of climate and security, which is uh, diplomacy, development and defence. And actually, the, the sort of hard power of defence isn't even there. It's, it's, it's soft power of defence. It's, it's um, being part of the diplomatic. It's being part of the development and allowing development to take place. Um, we, we have engineers who can support others and, 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 and certain skills that can support others. We, you know, we don't take weapons to humanitarian assistance and disaster relief most of the time. So, so there's, there's, there's a side of defence which is more than just putting weapons on the ground. And I think that's really what I'm referring to with upstream capacity building that you mentioned. It's, it, it's about helping um, people build their resilience, not through military might, but through understanding the circumstances, the factors, and the way that we plan, uh, and, and I, was, I, I just observed that um, the the most useful, or one of the most useful things that we did for the NHS during the COVID crisis um, was provide lots and lots of planners to the NHS. So, so that's the sort of thing that I was talking about, rather than just weapons on the ground. Richard and Kerry, thank you so much. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Um, we've got to bring it to a close, unfortunately. However, obviously, we're all looking towards the climate change talks in Glasgow at the end of the year. Um, as always, there will be a vast amount of uh, expectation and hope, um, a triumph of hope over, over expectation in some cases after having been a myself uh, involved in reporting on these events for many, many times. However, let's stay optimistic. I'd like to ask you both what your hopes are from these talks and what you think is, is really going to be achieved. Kemi, first of all, what do you hope and what do you think will be achieved? Well, um, for me, I, like I said earlier, I, I always want to see development in Africa, in Nigeria. So the government and leaders of our society should strive to strengthen equality, social inclusion, empower the most marginalized and vulnerable communities with resources to adapt to climate change impact. And Richard, your hopes and your expectations? So my, my real hope is that world leaders at COP26 in Glasgow later this year really understand the implications at the international level, the national level and the local level of climate change. And it's understanding that local level of how it is affecting um, regions of the world, which they don't necessarily see every day, which means that they must take action. What's my expectation is that this is an uphill struggle that we have really got to persuade people is one of the most important aspects, if not the most important aspect of the next 30 years. Um, and that will take time. And therefore, whilst we'll hear lots of things, I think uh, we will perhaps move two steps forward, but it won't be as far as we'd wish to go. You're very diplomatically not staying and one step back, <laughs> but I think that might, that might have been implied. <laughs> Uh, and and we 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 completely understand what you mean. <laughs> thank you so much to both of you. It's been a, a real pleasure, and thank you very much to you, our audience, for joining us for another uh, greening the news. We'll speak to you this time next month. Until then, have a great rest of your months and uh, a great professional journey through sustainability. Thank you. Mm -hmm.